Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and this is the weekly sermon from Gateway Community Church. We're excited to be able to share inspiring and meaningful messages to help you grow in Christ. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. Now let's dive into God's Word together with this week's message. If you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab those and find Exodus chapter 15. We made it to our last day on this series on the book of Exodus. And as you might note, Exodus doesn't end in chapter 15. There are many, many more chapters yet to come. And yet for our purposes, we have been looking at one theme from bondage to deliverance. From bondage to deliverance. And that is the culminating moment that we are going to experience today as we look at the 15th chapter. So I hope you enjoyed this series as much as we enjoyed preparing for it and trying to look through scripture and what it says and identifying what its original intent was for the original listeners, but also its intent for us today in Abbotsford in 2022. Um, In fact, I, I want you to notice something that this deliverance story is ultimately our deliverance story too. So here's an example of how to think about this. Have you ever noticed every single time the law is referenced in scripture, it always starts with some rendition of these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In fact, scripture says these words 87 times times. Every time the law is mentioned, those words are uttered. Why? Why? Because we don't know any of the people who have uh, experienced the deliverance story, right? Not only are they all gone, but their bones have turned into dust. So why is it every time we think about God's law, we remember this story? Because this is our story too. God made a way when there was no way. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is our story. And so then, when we have the eyes to see this, we see it everywhere. It's just like Exodus chapter one. When we read seven times, which is the number of completion, we read seven times of Israel's enslavement in Egypt, their avodah, their slavery to the Egyptians. And there was nothing that they could do about it. And then when we see Jesus, we recognize that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us were dead to sin, and it was only through the intervention of God that we found deliverance. Or it's just like what we learned a couple weeks ago, the blood on the doorposts of Israel's home. What is all that about? We recognize in that particular story that anyone who had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over. And then when we see the person of Jesus We see that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so it's not about our moral pedigree. It's not about our ethnicity or our culture or our background or our morality. It is all about the blood of the Lamb. And if your heart has been marked by the blood of the Lamb, then you have been delivered. You have been set free. 
It's just like when Pharaoh and his chariots are racing to catch up to the people of Israel when they're in the wilderness. And when Israel sees them coming, they start to panic. They freak out. They say, was it because there were not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the wilderness to die? And God says to them through Moses, in essence, he says, be still. Stand firm. Know what I am about to do for you on this day. The deliverance comes from God, not from you, not from anything that you can do. Watch and see what God will do. And once again, in the person of Jesus, we see what he has done. And it's like the parting of the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. We see that Jesus was the one who stretched out his hands and held back the waters of God's justice so that we could walk through on dry ground, us and our children. And so we saw a beautiful picture of that today already, haven't we? With Brian and with Jess and with their beautiful baby girl, they went together as a family, as families, they walked through these waters experiencing the redemption of God from bondage to deliverance. This isn't just a cool story that happened long, long ago. It's our story too. God is doing exactly the same thing in our hearts, and maybe, just maybe, for some of you here today, you haven't yet made that decision. This could be the day that you experience the deliverance of God. And there's something that I wanted to share with you last week in Exodus chapter 13, but I decided to wait until this week because I think it points perfectly to everything we're going to be talking about today in Exodus chapter 15. So if your Bibles are open, look at Exodus 13. This is where Moses gives kind of his first things first message to the people of Israel. And what I find so remarkable is here he doesn't talk about the law. That doesn't happen until Sinai. He doesn't talk about the Ten Commandments. He doesn't talk about the land flowing with milk and honey. He doesn't talk about their deliverance from their bondage and their slavery. He doesn't even talk about the dangers of the wilderness that they're about to head into, all of which could be very applicable and important topics. But the first thing that God commands Moses to say to all the people of Israel is a command from, for parents to instruct their children to know the deeds of the Lord. Here's what it says. Exodus 13, verse eight. And you shall explain this to your child. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I went free from Egypt. So here's the way that I put it in your note sheet. Before freedom, before the law, before even referencing the a land of freedom that is flowing with milk and honey, the people of God are primarily meant to be a community of proclaimers and educators. That's the calling of our lives. We are called to catechize, that's a fancy word for teach, to catechize ourselves and the next generation of all the things that God has done. This is our constant endeavor from one generation to the next to recognize that God is the one who fights our battles and wins. And because of everything that he has done, we can be set free. So parents, instruct your children. Let them know what has happened this day from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, so that all will know 
that Jesus Christ is God. That is the calling of the church. This is who we are called to be, to recognize that we were saved through the blood of the lamb and that all need to know this message. Every person that you know, your children and all those whom the Lord our God will call need to know this incredible message. This is the reason why I hope you will never grow tired of me telling you this is the kind of church that we have to be. We have to be a church that is biblically serious, that uh, we love the word of God, that we read the word of God ferociously, and when we're cut, we bleed the word of God. And not only that, that we are community-driven. This is the reason why we push life groups, not because life groups are all that, but because we know what happens in that context where we can live out the roughly 66 one another commands, not advices, the commands of Scripture to love one another, to care for one another, to admonish one another. That season of iron sharpening iron, as Scripture talks about. We have to be in, in huddles together, spurring one another on in faith. And not only that, but that we would be relentlessly missional people. That we would recognize that the calling that Moses gave the people of Israel is also our calling today still. That we are meant to be proclaimers of the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is what it means to be a church. That is the focus of our lives. And so Moses, he gives us this first things first, telling us to be educators to our children. And then what do we see? The sea is split in two. The people of Israel walk through on dry ground, which is their ordination ceremony into their priestly ministry to be representatives of God to a waning world. And then on the other side, what do we see? What's the very first thing the people of Israel do? They proclaim God's excellencies. They sing. Oh, how they sing. And if we could just have the eyes and the ears to hear this and to see this, more than three million people singing with all their hearts. Could you imagine the sound, the reverberation under their feet? They sing the praises to God. Take a look at this, Exodus chapter 15. I wanna look at the first verse preceding it. Uh, 1431, and when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Then Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. Did you know there are over 400 verses in scripture inviting us to sing? And of those more than 400 verses, 50 of them are commands to sing. It's a really interesting thing to take note of, just how many times we are commanded to sing, right? You shall not murder and sing. You shall not bear false witness and sing. Honor your father, father and mother, oh, and sing. You shall not lie or steal or cheat, but you should sing. It's just like a really interesting juxtaposition to think about just how many times we are commanded in scripture to sing. And some of you, you love that. 
You know, when I was um, just started dating Julie, every time I went to her family's house, the music was always on. It was always on, always singing, always singing, always singing. And I'm an extrovert, but I always had to leave the house and go for walks because they were singing so much. And then we got married and we made a compromise and we're always listening to music in our house. But you know, for those of you who love these commands, it brings you joy to sing, right? But if you're a little bit more like me, you're probably like, here's what church should be like. It should be kind of like going to a coffee shop, listening to some music in the background, getting a good TED talk and going home. And yet what we see in scripture is it's good for us not only to read scripture, not only to pray scripture, but to sing it and to have it wash over us and to incite all of our senses as we not only hear, but we feel all the things that God has done. And for those of you who, let's just say, are really bad singers, I got some good news for you. God's bar in terms of his expectations for excellence are quite low. Let me show you. Uh, Psalm 95 verse one, it says, make a joyful what? What's the word? Noise. Okay, that's a low bar, right? He doesn't say, sing with beauty and excellence. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 98 verse four, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Psalm 98 verse six, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. So I got good news. The bar for worship is make some noise. You don't have to have the voice of Jason or of John or of Sophie. Thank the Lord. Otherwise, we wouldn't have many people singing. But that's why they're up here and we're all down there. We make a noise to the Lord for all the great things that he has done. So here's a song that the people of Israel sing as they are captivated by the strength of God, the initiative of God, and the cosmic victory of God. And we'll take note of what that means in just a second. So look again at your Bibles. Then Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver, he's hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Circle, highlight, underline. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the sea of reeds. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. So we hear this rendition of a horse and its rider or chariots and their armies. What is all that about? What we see here is that the agent and the instrument of war have been destroyed. And because of that, the people of Israel no longer have anything to fear. The threat has been conquered. And the people of Israel now, they are free. And again, I, I hope we have the eyes to see Jesus in this. The cosmic reality that is at play in this story is that this is the latest rendition of the promise of God made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. 
the, uh, we have Adam and Eve. They have fallen into sin. Sin has corrupted the entire world that God has made good, but now a sin nature has formed within the hearts of all of us. But what is the first thing that God does? First, he clothes Adam and Eve in their nakedness, and then he gives them a promise that from your offspring, a son will come and he will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will strike his heel. Victory will be given to us. We will be delivered from our bondage. And this is the latest rendition of that story. And then if we have the eyes to see it, once Jesus comes, we see that he is the person to which all other stories point. Every story whispers his name and we see it again here. And look again at verse two, this is incredible. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my what? Salvation. He has become my salvation. And so from this point on, these words are echoed throughout all of Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The song of salvation is birthed into the hearts of God's people. It's not just, he has delivered me one time from my enemies. He is my salvation ultimately and eternally and in all times and places. That's a very different thing. God has become my salvation. And so I want to propose to you that is the reason why we sing. And it is the reason why we should sing with even more enthusiasm and gusto than the people of Israel did after the parting of the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds. Do you know why? Because at that time, that was a temporary deliverance, wasn't it? Wasn't it? But for us, now that we see Jesus for who he truly is, we know that we have a ultimate deliverance in King Jesus. I've been waiting for about um, six weeks to tell you this story, and it's finally here. Um, I've shared with you that according to our Jewish friends, according to Jewish Midrash, every time they celebrate the Seder Passover meal, they have four cups of wine, what they call four cups of salvation, right? So let's look at them one more time here. This is from Exodus 6, verses 6 through through 9. God says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. That is a geographical liberation. They're leaving Egypt. I will free you from being slaves to the Egyptians. That is a physical liberation, and the shackles have fallen off. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. That is a legal or jurisprudential liberation. When he says, I will redeem you. And then the fourth that we see is, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. That is a spiritual liberation. And they experienced that the moment they walked through the Sea of Reeds. So they have now experienced the four cups of salvation But you might recall, six weeks ago, I said there's actually a fifth cup. And this fifth cup is the one that makes all the difference. And we pick up that in verse 8. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore. I am the Lord. So even today, 
our Jewish friends, they take five cups, and during the Seder Passover meal, they drink the first, the second, the third, the fourth, but the fifth cup is poured, but undrank. What is that? What are they doing? What are they trying to think about with having that fifth cup sitting there and they don't drink from that wine? Well, it's everything that this series is all about. That fifth cup is the cup of ultimate salvation, ultimate deliverance. Not just a deliverance from physical oppression, because like, what good is it to have all four cups but to not have the fifth? Like, what good is that? To have a geographical, a physical, and a legal liberation with no ultimate deliverance. Because last I checked, outside of the person and the work of Jesus, death still has a 100% success rate. Last I checked, wars still rage. Last I checked, we have natural catastrophes, fires and floods that still do their thing. Cancer still grows. Marriages still fall apart. Kids still fall away. What good is a temporary liberation if it always results in the same thing? That we say, oh my goodness, I got to live beyond what the median is. The median is 84 years. I lived till I was 87. The end result is still death. What good is it? And that's the question that the people of Israel are contemplating as they are taking the Seder dinner. So I want to share with you a quote from a rabbi by the name of Jonathan Sachs. I've quoted him before, but he's getting at this question when he says this. In our times, the Jewish people have returned in some ways to the land. So he's talking about how Jews live in Israel today. But if you've turned on the news in the last year or 10 years or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years, you know that it is a very unstable place. It is not a shalom place. Wars still rage in Israel all the time. So we've returned in some ways, he concedes. Be that as it may, it is no less moving to question how far in the present do we celebrate hope for the future? What a question. What a question. How far in the present do we celebrate hope for the future? Four-fifths or all five? The promise God gave Moses at the time of Exodus spoke not just to that time, but to all time. Hope kept the Jewish people alive. This is what this whole series is all about. Just look right here for a second. This is so important for us to take note of. This is what Exodus is all about. I am here to tell you that for the Christian, we get to drink the fifth cup because we have seen the blood of Jesus poured out on the cross as our ultimate deliverer. The people of Israel experienced that temporary deliverance, not to take anything away from that, but it was a temporary deliverance. But for those of us who are in Jesus today, we get to celebrate the ultimate deliverance that only Jesus can bring. And for that reason, we sing. Oh my, we sing. 
And that's why we should sing with such exuberance and joy. This is the way I put it in your note sheet. Israel experienced on that day a temporary liberation. Today we have experienced the ultimate liberation that will never end. Every story whispers the name of Jesus and we sing with all of our hearts because he is the one who brought about our redemption from slaves to being free and in his presence. And that's where it continues. Look at verse six in your Bible. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The surging water stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. Did you notice just how many times the word you is used in these few verses? It's remarkable. Your right hand, majestic in power, your right hand shatters the enemies in the greatness of your majesty. You threw down those who opposed you by the blast of your nostrils. And on and on and on and on and on and on it goes. And so it's teaching us something, isn't it? It's all about you, 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 your, your, your. You made this happen. You initiated this. You conquered all. You brought about deliverance. It's not about me. It's about your salvation, your plan, your cosmic reality. And we tend to forget this. We tend to forget that it is all about the initiative of God, the plan of God, the salvation of God. And we watch and we see the salvation that God brings. And I think this is something that we still wrestle with because like I shared with you last week, we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that apart from God, we can do no good thing. We've, we've read scripture, we understand what it says, but we also think to ourselves, yeah, but God still grades on a curve. And I still need to be more moral and more righteous than other people around me. And so we seek to control and to manipulate God in our own ways. And this story reveals to us, it is all the work of God and none the work of Justin. That my part to play in this is exactly what Moses told us before the parting of the Red Sea. Watch and see what the Lord does on this day. And he will deliver you. And then we see the second part of the stanza and it shows the futility of human effort. Look at verse nine. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. Like what a juxtaposition, right? God says, and the people of God say, it's all about you, 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 your, your, your. But what does the heart say? What does our human heart say? It's all about me, 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 my, 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 my. And our hearts today are exactly the same way. Because of our sin nature, the traitor within, this is how our own hearts lie to us. It's all about me. And we have to fight that. Verse 10, but you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is majestic like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. 
And so here again, we see that the people of Israel, they're not just celebrating this temporary liberation, but they're recognizing that God brings about ultimate salvation for his children. And we see this on shining display as we look at verse 12, and a new concept is introduced in scripture for the very first time. This is the first time in all of scripture that we hear these words. Look at verse 12. You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, circle, highlight, underline, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. So the concept of holiness, set-apartness, is not a new idea in Scripture. But then we see this new word, which is translated in your Bibles as unfailing love. This is the Hebrew word hesed. Say hesed. This is a really difficult word for us to translate, but I think the best way we can think about this is, let's put it this way. I put it this way in your note sheet. God's love is the only covenantal promise of I do and I will that never fails. That never fails. So as a pastor, or as generally as pastors, we have the rare privilege of walking people through covenant commitments all the time. We saw that again this morning. We saw covenant commitments that we made. We saw covenant commitments that Brian and Jess made. And we see this in baptism. We see this in um, election of office bearers for church leadership. We see this in marriage. And maybe marriage is the best example of this. What, what does a husband and wife do when, when they get together in matrimony? We see that they make really impossible covenant commitments to each other, don't they? In life and in death and sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, I will be all things to you, right? These are the commitments that we make to each other. And they're really impossible standards. And yet we still make them. We aspire to live up to these covenants in recognizing that even when we fall, we're going to fall forward together as we do this. But here's what we see in the person of Jesus that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, when they make a promise, it is as good as done. They do not break their promises. So when God says, I love you, it's not a mushy kind of love, not a fleeting kind of love. He's saying, I will love you in an unfailing sort of way. It will never change, regardless of what you do. So when he says in life and in death, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, he means it and he does it 100% of the time. So much so, we've seen a constant rendition in scripture where God has gone even a step further where he said, here's the covenant I make. If I break my end of the covenant, then may my blood be shed. But here's the good news for you. If you break your end of the covenant, may my blood be shed. Either way, it's my blood. We see a rendition of that through the lamb's blood on the doorposts, but we see it ultimately in the person of Jesus. He is the one who makes and keeps his covenants perfectly, 100% of the time. These are the hesed promises of God. And this is what the people of Israel are singing about. 
And again, this is why I want to lay this down to you. This is the reason why we as Christians today should sing with even more gusto than the people of Israel because we have seen all that Jesus has done. We have seen his promises fulfilled on the cross. Look at verse 14. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, that your hands have established. So here's what's happening. They are singing about God's deliverance, God's reign, God's power and control forever and ever and ever. And I can't help but get this image out of my mind from Revelation chapter four in which we see the throne room of God and every created being is around the throne and there at the center is the lamb who was slain. And all of us, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, we begin worshiping the Lord and bowing down and singing his praises. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, the great creator of the universe, you alone are worthy to be praised. And then what happens? Someone comes out and he says in a loud voice, who is worthy to unlock the scroll and its seven seals? Because again, we're in bondage. Apart from Jesus, we're in bondage and there's nothing that we can do about it. And they discover that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so what does John do? He weeps and he mourns because no one can do it. And then an elder puts his hand on John's shoulder and he says, behold, the line of Judah, the lamb who was slain, he can unlock the scroll and its seven seals. And then in this moment of frantic panic and sadness and devastation, turns into exuberant joy. And once again, the whole angelic chorus and all of God's people and all of God's creation, they begin to sing his praises because he has opened the scroll once and for all. There is victory in Jesus. And we all have this. We get to anticipate that day in which all of these things will be realized. And I just, I wanna convince you that if we know this deep in our bones, we might as well get started with the singing right now. Why wait? Let's celebrate right now all the things that God has done. And I want you to have the eyes to see that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of these promises that we see in Exodus 1 through 15. So here's, here's a question that I wanna lay at your feet. Um, and, and I think this is really important for us to consider in our own lives today. I put it this way in your note sheet. When your present is unsure, 
Know that the cross is unchanging and your future is secure. If God is God, then your future is secure, right? If everything that we've recounted today is true, then it should bring about great rejoicing in our lives, even in the midst of our tragedies and disappointments. Because we have the same mantra as the Apostle Paul when he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Come at me, death. What are you gonna do? Kill me? Then I get to go to glory around the throne room of God. What are you gonna do? Keep me alive? I'm gonna try and convert everybody. What are you gonna do? You can't do anything to me, death. And I think in the same way, we need to have this, this posture, this understanding that Jesus is gonna work in such a way that he's going to bring about his glory and our good, and there's nothing, no nothing, that evil or death can do about it because Jesus has made a way. So one of the songs that we sing is um, 10,000 Years, right? And it says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. So let's ask ourselves that question. Let's look at that. What do I have to fear today that say 10,000 years from now would still cause me any anxiety or fear or consternation? I could die, right? but I just don't think that's gonna matter all too much 10,000 years ago when I'm in glory around the throne room of God making much of Jesus and singing his praises. And so I can get excited about those things even here and now. And even if, let's say, you know, I'm, I'm 34, let's say I pass away at the age of 64, which is 20 years earlier than life expectancy. Do you think in 10,000 years I'm gonna be like, come on, God, why did why'd you let me go at 64 instead of 84? I just don't think it's going to matter much. Or maybe, heaven forbid, I could lose Julie. And I'm telling you, if, if something ever happened to Julie, I'm, I'm going to need your help. One of the things that Julie and I talk about a lot is that life is short and eternity is long. And so we want to live that way. And that's how we, we try to conduct our lives and so if, if, heaven forbid, anything happened to Julie or for you happened to your spouse, I, I think it would be absolutely devastating. And many of you in this room have already experienced that. But I think 10,000 years from now, Julie and I are gonna be around the throne room of God, making much of Jesus, singing his praises. That's what Cor and Sini are doing right now. That's what Arnie and Joanne are doing today. They are making much of Jesus. They are singing his praises. They're around the throne room of God, looking and beholding and experiencing with their own eyes all that God has done. Something could happen to my kids. And I'm telling you, if something ever happened to my kids, I don't know what I would do. I don't know when I would get up off the floor. In my nine years of ministry, I have conducted three funerals for stillborn children, and they were the worst days of my life, and they're not even my own kids, but I love their parents. And I know some of you here have lost children, and it just rips your heart out. So I share these as examples because I know they're real for many of you, that you've experienced loss and heartache and pain 
and we can't pacify the pain. All we can do is gather perspective and to say, what, what does scripture say? And I know for myself as a parent, that's the reason why most nights I go to my children's bedrooms while they're sleeping and the way our house is built, I can put my hand on a left door and my right hand on the right door. That's just the way that the house is. And I pray for my four children. And I say something like this. I say, Lord, thank you for entrusting these four children to me. I ask that you would give me the strength to do what I can to be a loving father, that they would see the love of their heavenly father, even through their imperfect earthly father, and that you would help Julie and I steward our gifts of being loving parents. But more than all of that, I give my children to you because they're yours, they're not mine. Because I know my own heart. I know I'm going to try to manipulate and control things so that nothing bad ever happens. But I can't control that because I'm not God. And so sometimes things happen in our life where we question the love and the sovereignty and the unfailing love of God, the Hesed love of God. And we say, God, why would you do this to me? Why would you allow something like that to happen? And that's why I think we need to be thinking about the throne room of God. That 10,000 years from now, what will we be doing with our loved ones who have gone on before us? We'll be around the throne of God, singing his praises, making much of Jesus. So is God trustworthy? Yes. Is God loving? Yes. Can we trust him with our future? Yes, yes, and yes, because the promise of God is that he will bring about his glory and our good, and he says, you can bring that to the bank because I've never broken a promise. Never in my life have I broken a promise. I am faithful, I am trustworthy, I am true. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Let me prove this to you. There's one more passage that I want us to read before we close, and this one just makes me laugh, cry, all those things. Verse 22, take a look at this. We have experienced the high watermark for the people of Israel. They're, they're, they're priests. They're singing praises to God. And then we read this. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, and they went in the, to the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the, in the desert without finding any water. Uh-oh, when they came to Marah, which means bitter, they could not drink its water because it was bitter, which means Marah. That is why the place is called Marah, which means bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Now, that's pretty uh, redundant of a passage there, like that. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction to them and said, and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the distress I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where, they were, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped near the water. Isn't it just sad that after all of the miracles of God, the providence and sovereignty of God, the care of God, it takes them three days to start being bitter toward God? 
And by the way, just so you see the arc of the story, go back and read Exodus chapter one, verse 14, where it says that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, brought them into harsh and bitter service. That's the word avodah. And their service was marah, which means bitter. They start in bitterness and in slavery. God delivers them from the hand of Pharaoh, from their destruction. They are set free and they experience the sweet, sweet love of God. And it takes them three days to go back to Marah. And as I've shared with you constant times throughout this series, everyone worships something. You can be a slave to Pharaoh. You can be a slave to something else. You can be a slave to your own fear. You can be a slave to your own disappointment and bitterness toward God. We're all a slave to something. But what I love about this story is God tells Moses to take a log. And I'm just saying, if I was God, I would do something different with the log if you're catching my drift. And yet, what does he do? Last verse. There were 20 or 12 springs, 70 palm trees, that's shade, and they camped near the water. Even in the midst of our bitterness, God still provides. You can't outrun the cross. No matter what you've done, God will still come running after you. Well, here at Gateway, it is our sincere hope that you would be built up in your faith and in your walk before Christ through this message and every day as you study God's Word. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway.